If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. When you fix something, it's kind of intimate, like you have to stop and sit down in front of it and take it apart and clean it. And it's kind of gross sometimes. There's gunk in there (laughs) and you struggle with it and you put it back together and oh my God, it works. And it's very satisfying. And then you give it back to the customer. And it's like this moment of sort of realization, like, wow, this act of care has become sort of, it's like disappeared from our society in in a weird way. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you value our work, you can support us at patreon.com slash greendreamer or through purchasing our fundraising planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. In this episode, we have with us Sandra Goldmark, a designer, teacher, and entrepreneur whose work focuses on circular economy solutions to overconsumption and climate change. Her new book is titled Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet, and it uses a series of objects that she fixed in her pop-up repair shops to chart a clear path to a more sustainable and equitable pattern of consumption for individuals and businesses. We're going to talk all things related to the repair economy, what redefining materialism and our relationship with stuff may look like, and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. In 2013, I was home on maternity leave with my second child and my toaster broke. It's a very unexciting moment, not a big deal. Also, my vacuum broke and a lamp and the strap on my backpack all at the same time. So there I was at home with a a newborn and a toddler and all this broken stuff. And I thought, I don't really want to buy new stuff. I just want this old stuff to work. And my husband, bless him, he tried to find the heating element for the toaster. It was unavailable. And I called the vacuum manufacturer. They suggested I drive to Hackensack, New Jersey to get it fixed. And I was like, I'm not driving to Hackensack with a newborn and a toddler. It's just not happening. (laughs) So I just got this real bee in my bonnet. I had actually already been thinking and reading about repair for a while, but I got this real bee in my bonnet of like, this is ridiculous. We need to do something about this. I'm not going to buy a new toaster. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the start of it all. 
So this may be obvious overall, but what do we know about the trends of repair versus buying new from the last few decades? And why should this be a big concern for us? The trends are very clear. Funnily enough, it's actually hard to find good data about the decline of repair. There are some statistics available, but basically it's an industry that is so atrophying, it's actually even hard to find the data. Mm. But a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't need the data. I see it with my own two eyes. When I was growing up in this neighborhood, there was a jeweler and an appliance guy and a cobbler and they're all gone. And that is something that has seems to be a very common experience for many people in, in cities and towns all over the country. And the the simple reason is, oh, well, new stuff is is cheap. It's cheaper to buy new. But one of the things, so after that toaster broke, I started running these short-term repair shops all over New York City. And one of the things that I feel like we discovered in our repair shops is that it's actually like a teeny bit more complicated than that. And that the decline in repair for me is 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 tied into a whole lot of questions manufacturing and labor, the cheapness of new stuff, but also our cultural attitudes towards waste, the way our shopping system is built. It's a whole big system. And repair became for me not only a way to fix my toaster, but a way to really look deeply at this whole system of stuff and our relationship with our stuff. Sometimes people talk about how companies build their products with planned obsolescence because they want to encourage consumerism so durability gets pushed to the side, whether intentionally or not. From being immersed in this world, do you think it's true that companies are building planned obsolescence into their products? And have you witnessed it or come across research in terms of how how easily certain things and appliances made today might break or malfunction compared to how things used to be decades ago? Oh, without a doubt. There's no question that obsolescence exists and is designed in. There's a whole there's whole reams of data about it. There's a great book called Made to Break. And there's also different kinds of obsolescence. There's something that's called progressive obsolescence, meaning that the style evolves. So all of a sudden, you know, classic example, you're in the 1950s and you have a white refrigerator, but all of a sudden you really feel like you need an avocado green refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) So that's actually a designing in a form of of perceived obsolescence. Oh, my white fridge is just, just doesn't feel right anymore. Technological or physical obsolescence is like, so technological might be, oh, my phone doesn't work anymore with these updates. It's slower now and that's built in. So I need to get a new phone or physical obsolescence is it literally breaks. And the classic example there is the light bulb. There's a famous light bulb. I think it's in the Northwest United States that has been burning for over a hundred years because it was designed and built to last forever. And then there's a great documentary called The Light Bulb Conspiracy about how all the light bulb companies got together and were like, we're never going to, you know, this is not good for, this is not a business model. And they literally designed the light bulbs to burn out after a certain amount of time. So it's definitely a real thing. It definitely still exists. And you definitely see it when you're fixing things because you open them and you can sometimes just tell that it's kind of made to break. (laughs) I'm actually very interested in the perceived obsolescence. So what do you think it is that drives our perceptions of trends to change and our desires for something that's just different? In some ways, I think it's it's very normal. It's natural. It's not that big a deal, actually. If you think about it, fashion has always existed. That's that's actually, it's a thing that humans do. We love the shiny, the new appealing thing, the newest fashion. The problem is that our society and our system 
right now is only fueling and supporting that impulse. And our economic system only profits from that impulse of getting the new, the shiny thing. So we also, as humans, also very naturally have an affection and a love of the old and the familiar and the comfortable, right? You might want that like flashy new avocado green fridge, but you might also really love your old toaster or whatever it is for whatever your own weird emotional reasons are. And right now, our economic system is built to only make money off of the new, the impulse to get the new. So your your equally natural and equally valid impulse to keep your old thing is completely unsupported. You can't get it fixed. You can't hold on to it. It's it's a pain in the butt to get it repaired. So you're, it's like an imbalance. I think it's mm-hmm. not that I don't I don't think new things are all horrible. I actually think they're quite wonderful. I think they're sort of precious and should be rare and appreciated. The problem, I think, is that we need to understand that impulse, the other side of the equation, and and value that and build that into our business models. Right. And in terms of the market currently disproportionately feeding into our desires for new things, even when, for example, in fashion, the trends always kind of come in cycles. So even when certain vintage styles are trending, you'll have all these new things that are vintage inspired rather than really just, you know, helping people to more easily find the vintage styles that are best suited to us. Yeah, there. I mean, that's like a really great example. Like, Again, in terms of it's how do we support the impulse? Like you, you're sick of your old jacket and you want a new jacket. Like that's okay. It's it. Let's get you a new jacket. It doesn't have to be made of virgin materials. Let's buy a used jacket that's new to you. Donate your or sell your old jacket so that can be new for somebody else. Like there are totally healthy and sustainable ways to actually support people's impulse to get new stuff. It doesn't, you don't need a brand new jacket hot off the press. You can buy a used jacket and it's like super satisfying and fun for your, to scratch that I want something new itch. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, because new, new is relative. So something that is new to me, it doesn't have to be actually new, but it's new to me. So it keeps my life interesting. So do you think we have a bigger problem with people buying new because it's easier to do than to perhaps repair broken things, given that the market doesn't really support that right now? Or our normalized culture of material disposability and socialized norms of people tending to always want the latest and the greatest? I mean, I guess I see them as totally intertwined and like feeding each other. Like our... We need to change our system, right? We've built such a powerful system to to feed people's desires and, in fact, stoke people's desires. Like, not only do people, oh, I want a new jacket, but we all of our advertising efforts and all of our marketing efforts go towards increasing that desire for new stuff or making you feel bad if you don't have it. So that is a little bit out of whack. And I feel like we need to take some energy from that part of the system and put it into finding ways to support people in taking care. So yes, like to find ways to make it possible to repair, to make reuse and passing things on incredibly easy, right? It should be just as easy to donate something or to sell it online as it is to buy a new thing online. Mm -hmm. So we need to build the system so that people's inclinations don't have to overcome all of these barriers. Because I really believe what we saw in our repair shops is the inclination is there. Like if you create the repair shop, if you create the, the thing, the way for people to get it done and it's convenient enough, they show up. They showed up at our shops in droves. They they want to keep their stuff and they're even willing to pay for it. So it shows me that that desire plus the incredible like technological capacity that we now have on this planet, we can do it. We can build a system where it's where we're supporting 
sustainable behaviors. Mm -hmm. I really can't. So, I mean, planned obsolescence, when things, when appliances break, it's obviously a frustrating experience for people because when people are used to having that thing and having it be a part of their routines and then it breaks, I think most people's immediate reactions is like, I just want this to work. So with the current system that we have, if consumers aren't really winning, if a lot of workers are being exploited to maximize productivity and to make the goods as cheap as possible, and if at the same time our planet is being degraded and depleted, what do you see as our barriers to actually demanding better and demanding change as it pertains to consumerism? Well, you laid it out very nicely, the kind of crazy conundrum that we're in, where, where we have a system right now that does not work for the individual, does not work for the people and communities that are manufacturing, does not work for the planet. Like, it doesn't work for anybody right now. <laughs> mm, except for the top 1%, maybe. <laughs> That's true. And maybe the, um, to some extent, yeah, I mean, the companies that are profiting from this system, perhaps. Mm. But ultimately, and I, and I think this, there is a sign of hope for me here. I think many, many manufacturers and retailers, they know that this system isn't going to work for them either for very much longer because, because of depletion of resources. And increasingly because of backlash from consumers, which I think is really exciting and important. I mean, look what's happening in fashion. Fashion was one of the worst industries and still has major problems, but is some of the most interesting new models and, and interesting new trends are happening in fashion because of the backlash, because of the incredibly strong revulsion that people felt when they saw things like Rana Plaza or, you know, conditions around the world. So it, it I do feel hopeful. I feel like we can solve this one. And I think you're right that, can, you know, as you implied, like people can fight for it and can demand it and, it. and it does make a difference. So as you mentioned, in 2013, you started Fix Up, which was a pop-up repair shop where you helped people fix all kinds of broken stuff. I'm curious if you did all that repair yourself. And if so, how did you learn the skills of doing all the different types of repair needed for all the different things that needed that people needed fixed? Oh, God, I was not all alone. No, heaven <laughs> forbid. <laughs> it was actually wonderful because that was one of the things that made the shop so fun. Is So I come from a theater background. I was a theatrical set designer and some costumes. And my husband was a technical director and production manager. So we're like those backstage people, you know, who know how to make a whole bunch of stuff and build it, build things. And we, we brought in some other friends, our friend Adam, who's an artist. He makes lamps and clocks and a, some fellow theater people, costumers, carpenters, electricians, other artists. And we, so we would bring all these people with different expertise so that customers could bring any old object, everything from like a necklace to a stuffed animal, to a blender, all to this one location. And we basically taught ourselves how to translate our theater skills into this repair shop skills. Um, a little bit trial and error. The nice thing is, our, as our customers always said, that is they were like, well, it's broken anyway. <laughs> Nothing to lose. By, that's right. And by the end, you know, we got about over the seven years, we fixed about 2,500 objects and we had an 85% success rate. So we, we, we learned a lot. It was really fascinating to learn how those skills of theater can apply offstage. Mm. And the 15% that we called repair fails, that 15% was largely appliances. And it was largely because either we couldn't get the part or because a plastic thing was broken inside the machine, a joint or a stress point or a plastic gear. Uh, so that was another really interesting thing where you realize that plastic, which already has is so, you know, such a fraught and problematic material, 
when used in in poorly when designed poorly then it breaks and the whole entire machine becomes unusable. Mm. So you could actually technically fix those things, right? If you had access to getting those parts or potentially having custom plastic pieces made to yeah, replace Yeah, that them. number could have gone down if we had been able to get the parts or like, like at one point we thought, oh, we could 3D print these plastic parts. It wasn't Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Like in our scale of shop and the price, you know, we were trying to keep our prices reasonable. It would take, you know, like <laughs> a lot right. to 3D print a part. But it, but yeah, that number could have gone way down. There's a few, there are times when something just isn't fixable. Like if the motor is totally burned out and you'd have to rebuild the whole motor, sometimes you just, you're like, it's not going to happen. Or there were some old lamps we got that were really just like fire hazards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I still think it's really incredible though, that you guys got to fix 85% of the things that were broken. And like the majority of what you couldn't fix technically could have been fixed. So I yeah, think it's that, possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a very positive thing to learn. You know, if we did have a bunch more of these repair shops, then we would be able to save a lot of money for people from needing to buy new when we didn't really have to. Mm -hmm. And also just the waste that we might be able to divert with this. Yeah. And for me, the real like dream, there's two dreams. One, the like next dream up from there, from what you said, is that businesses realize that they can actually make money from repair. And this is important because right now, all of these businesses, the only way they make money is by selling new stuff. So their only incentive is to make more and more new stuff and try to get you to buy it. But if they could actually also make some money from repair, from service, from upgrade, then all of a sudden that's a little bit less pressure to make so much new stuff. Mm -hmm. And what if they could also make money selling used things? Like, it would be a whole different landscape and a whole different sort of set of incentives. And then they might start designing them differently, right? Because they know they're going to have to repair it someday instead of me in my shop with my theater buddies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And I remember you said before that your initial plan and vision was to approach Walmart, for example, and have all these big box retailers to have a repair shop in every single one of their stores. And as you mentioned, repair could be another way that they potentially make money. But I'm curious if you think this might be sort of them eating up their own market share, as in like if they were to offer these repair shops, the the margin that they get from those repairs might be smaller than the margin they get from selling new. So they're still ultimately incentivized to not take on this business model. Exactly. Well, that's the challenge. So yes, I that was the first thing is I had my letter to Walmart and, um, and I still have it somewhere. But in 2013, it was really laughable. Like people were literally like, ha ha, that's so nice. But like, there's no way Walmart and Target and all these places are going to start fixing things because that, as you said, they're, they'd be cannibalizing their own market. But actually, what's really interesting is it's starting to happen. Like, look at Ikea. Now they're doing their buyback program and they're beginning to dabble into repair because they realize that now, yes, their margins on repair are going to be really, really tight. Or maybe, you know, maybe they're going to have to be subsidizing repair for a little while. But if you look down the road and you realize that natural resources and fossil fuels are not going to always be this cheap because they're so artificially cheap now. And if you look down the road and realize that labor, international wages for labor are going to have to go up as pressure continues to mount, you start to see that, wait a minute, these circular economy practices might actually become not just like a marketing stick, but an actual part of our business model. And IKEA is the best example because they're really going there. And it's it's fascinating to me that it's that it's happening. Give it all. 
Are there any other innovative business models that you've seen that where they fully embrace the idea of a circular business that has really inspired you? I mean, there's so many really interesting ones out there, especially the smaller ones. You know, Patagonia obviously has really been out in front for many years and Eileen Fisher. There's one of my favorite companies is here in New York. It's called App Deco, like a, like APT, Apartment Deco. They didn't even start for green reasons. They just wanted to make buying and selling used furniture easier. But they've developed this this whole system where it makes it easy for me to buy or sell you my couch, right? Because before that, the whole thing, it was such a pain in the butt. I want to buy your couch or sell you mine. And how do I get it to you? Mm-hmm. And it's such a pain. That challenge, that friction is something that, that needs to be overcome because it's so easy right now to just like click a button and poof, tomorrow a couch magically appears in my house, right? Right. <laughs> But for it to get my couch to magically appear in your house is a really big deal. So the companies that are tackling that, that question of reverse logistics, are the ones that I'm really, really watching and excited about. Mm, Well, definitely check that out. And as you've talked to so many people doing this repair work, I'm curious what has been some of your biggest aha moments or just new insights that that you've received from talking to your community members in regards Mm -hmm. to what might need to be changed or what perspectives need to be shifted in order for us to move towards a more circular economy? One of the things I realized at some point in this whole repair shop project was that two things. One is that there was this real hunger in the community to talk about this problem and to address it. People were not happy with this system, with their stuff, with the waste. They they are longing for a different system. And that was really kind of powerful to feel in the community. And the other thing that I realized was that it's it's actually about, for, for me, it, it wound up being about much more than repair or fixing or even like emissions reduction or waste reduction, which those are all true things for repair. But the whole project, at some point I realized that it's about this concept of like really seeing and caring for what is in front of you and and around you. So like when you fix something, it's kind of intimate. Like you have to stop and sit down in front of it and take it apart and clean it. And it's kind of gross sometimes. There's gunk in there (laughs) and you struggle with it and you put it back together and oh my God, it works. And it's very satisfying. And then you give it back to the customer. And it's like this moment of sort of realization, like, wow, this act of care has become sort of, it's like disappeared from our society in a, in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And it's its not just fixing blenders and stuff, like people who do care for others, like home health aides or n- nurses or childcare, like they're, they're traditionally paid less. It's often women and people of color who do this work of care. So that act of taking care of things to me at some point halfway through I was like wow this is what I'm working on is this is why I I am doing this project is because I feel like we need to stop and sort of take care of what we have like literally whether it's a blender or another person or the planet Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It's interesting. I've been thinking about the word materialism, which is defined as a tendency to consider material possessions as more important than spiritual values. And so people often talk about materialism or love of stuff as a bad thing. I almost wonder if our senses of disposability come from our lack of love and care for stuff, our lack of appreciation for the meaning that material goods might be able to bring us, our lack of cherishing of these material goods, so that we're willing to mindlessly purge these things because we don't truly love them. So in other words, perhaps the definition of materialism might be setting us up for failure when we're told that us valuing material goods and valuing spiritual values are mutually exclusive, rather than us being able to find meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and spiritual value through things that can then encourage us to perhaps value everything much more deeply and not feed so much into disposability. I agree. And it's funny, it's complicated, because on the one hand, you don't want to like bow down b- before the God of things and, and, you know, like mm-hmm. that's not right either. Right. Like you don't, you, you know, would I rather spend time with my blender or my children? Like <laughs> that's an easy one. <laughs> um, would I rather have a lot of, a lot of wonderful stuff or would I rather have like, you know, five more minutes with my children? Like, and, but at the same time, I think you're totally right that I think it's also wrong to kind of disregard all of our, the stuff that we make and have, because, I guess because I think it's a blessing, actually. Like, we're really lucky to have blenders and clothing and and all of the things that keep us alive, because they really do, you know? We wouldn't survive for very long without without our stuff. And so maybe it's a question of, like, yeah, like, really seeing it, valuing it for what it is, not putting it higher than it needs to be, but also not putting it lower, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, to respect it and acknowledge that we're lucky to have it and take care of it. and And maybe that's the... The, the sort of spiritual lesson. Yeah. I mean, given that all of the products that we have essentially are gifts from the earth, if mm-hmm. we truly cared about the earth, then we would also pay a lot more respect and gratitude to everything that we have around us. Totally. I think so. I, you know, as you know, in my book, I draw a lot of, on the food movement because I feel like there's so much to learn there from people who've been thinking about food really deeply for so many years. And I think, as you just said, Food comes from the earth and it goes into our bodies. And many of us today are very conscious of that. You know, oh, wow, my food impacts my health and happiness. The way it's grown impacts the health and happiness of the of the people who grow it and the planet. And it's just the same for stuff. It comes from the earth. We transform it with, the, with our labor and then we bring it into our homes. And I feel like that recognition is, is a kind of simple first step of like, wow, this is, this matters. And just like food, where our disconnection from their origins have contributed to us not really knowing the impacts of our choices, our relationship with all of our stuff has clearly changed as well, as we've similarly become disconnected with their stories of how they were made and who made them and so on. So what do you think Mm. our stuff would tell us from their perspectives, seeing these trends over the last decades? And how can we move beyond all the fat stuff purges that have become normalized. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that distance. I totally agree. Like, so few of us make anything with our hands today. Like, even me, I actually do make things with my hands, but I'm looking around my room right now. Like, what percentage of things in this room did I make myself? Zero? I don't know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
And so in a way, fixing is a nice thing because you do have this very like personal, intimate relationship with the object. You know, you, you touch it, you take it apart. It's not making, but it's pretty close to it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like people who cook, I think sometimes people who really start getting into cooking, they do start thinking more deeply about their food and where it comes from and, and what it's doing to them. So I think that like one way to sort of get in touch with your stuff is to, to work on it and work with it and work with your hands. And I love the last little question you posed of like how almost like you're feels like you're inviting us to think about the world from our stuff's point of view. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So in theater, this is like a sort of dorky backstage theater thing, but I I feel like I often did that. I would try to think about an, a, a show from the object's point of view. Like, so you're walking in the dusty prop warehouse you know like which table should go on stage and I feel like sometimes you're in I feel like sometimes those tables and chairs are kind of calling out to you they're like hey pick me pick me I want to go on stage (laughs) so maybe I got in the habit of that after all too many years alone in the in the prop warehouses but thinking from an object's point of view hey this object has a life it has a life before it comes to me it has a life with me and it has a life after. And it, I think it's really nice to turn the tables and to, and to think of the object as having a little bit of agency, a little bit of, of a voice, because it is also, like you said, another way to kind of respect it a little bit more. And personally, I've been going through this shift of going from the idea of minimalism to maximalism, where minil- mm-hmm. minimalism is sort of about minimizing the things that you might not want as much in your life. So for example, if you want to minimize material goods, that's like you're minimizing the number of material possessions that you have. For me, the shift to maximalism is like, how do I help to maximize the life of this object that I have? So if I were to step into the shoes of this this gift that I have in front of me, what can I do to help them make the most of their lives. And if I were to have too many things, I wouldn't be able to properly care for everything. So you still kind of arrive at the same conclusions. It's just a perspective shift so that you come from the point of view of, you know, how do I, it's not just about me, but how do I help to ensure that this thing maximizes their lives and that Mm -hmm. I can get as much use out of it, or I can get as much out of this, build as much meaning and connection to it as possible and so forth. Totally. And it's a way, sometimes I feel like, yeah, the minimalism route can feel very, mm, can feel difficult or it can sometimes even engender like feelings of shame, you know, like, oh, I have so much stuff. I'm, something's wrong with me. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I should be this, I should be that. It's kind of like, like a diet thing. Like I should be, I should look a certain way, you know, and it's not very, um, it's not very nice way to live. (laughs) Whereas sort of thinking about what, what do I want to maximize in my life? And, you know, maybe it's however you approach it. I think, as you said, you might wind up in the same result, which is like, I don't want too much stuff in my home. I want, I want an amount of things that I can handle and care for. But the way you get there can be a lot more pleasant, I think. And, and then it's long lasting, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I also feel like, we make a lot of our choices based off of what we feel like can bring us more joy, satisfaction, or fulfillment. So when we actually focus on maximizing the things that we find to bring us those things, meaning, joy, purpose, and so forth, then we will actually accomplish that goal. But whereas if we were only focused on minimizing material objects 
or minimizing the things that we don't want, we still might not achieve fulfillment and we still might turn to unhealthy ways of trying to fill those voids that we have. Right. Yeah. And I think that that way of thinking allows for more diversity and variety in what people do. Like, let's say for me, it's also a question of how, like, let's say you're a person you love. This was actually a friend, a mom's friend when I was little. She loved salt and pepper shakers. Mm -hmm. She had like a crazy huge collection of salt and pepper shakers. And it brought her joy, like, bring it on. But my question is, if that's what you want to maximize, can you extend that to think how, how do I, how can I get these in a way that is that is sane, that is healthy, that doesn't hurt the environment, that doesn't hurt anybody else. And then you're truly maximizing the joy for yourself and others that your salt and pepper mm. shaker brings. You I know? love that. Yeah. So maximizing joy, maximizing the net joy and positive impact in all senses from the yeah, beginning. And it can to... be done. So as you think about the trends of consumerism and disposability in conjunction with this pandemic that we're in and how it's disrupted many norms for a lot of people, what are your highest hopes for how we build new normals, for how we view materialism, how we consume, and how we change this current consumptive and extractive system that we, a lot of us currently feel locked into? Ooh, that's a tall order, but for me, it comes back to that question of, of care, right? Like if we can sort of shift our values to essentially invest, and by that I mean everything, time, energy, money, to invest more in care, I think that will take us a long way there. So that means on sort of, you know, more businessy jargon terms, that means the circular economy. That means that we're investing in things like repair and reuse and reclaiming materials of objects that already exist. And then on a deeper level, it means recognizing the value and the beauty of, of everything around us and then not always being distracted by like the 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 shiny, the new, the Amazon click. Mm. And I, I think the second part sounds so difficult, right? How do we shift the whole value system of a society. <laughs> That's why in some ways I think it's easier to start from the first part to say, well, if we can build these systems to support these impulses that I think already exist in people, then that will help get us there. And as we're nearing the end of our conversation, what is the biggest message you'd like our listener to walk away with? And what is your call to action for them or some questions or prompts that you would like them to consider as they kind of take these ideas into their own lives? So in the book, in Fixation, I have these steps where I'm trying to, I'm, I'm sort of respectfully borrowing from Michael Pollan, who I think is such a genius in his work on food, because I'm trying to take this super complicated, emotionally fraught issue of stuff and, and acknowledge and explore the complexity, but also say, wait a minute, there's some simple ways forward. And so those ways forward are what I would hope people would begin to think about. And it goes like this, which is have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it and pass it on. And so those little five steps are, are I guess, my, my hope for people to change their patterns of consumption in a way that's, that's doable and accessible and, and will also feel good for them.
What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Oh, um, I, well, I always have to tip my hat to Michael Pollan since I have used him so much in my book, but actually the one book I read recently that I loved is called Brave New Medicine by Cynthia Lee. And it's about, it's like a personal healing journey. And I love it. Uh, first of all, I think it's wonderful on its own or for anybody who has any kind of chronic illness. But also, I feel like as we're approaching this question of climate change and our poor, troubled, very ill earth, the way she approaches healing, I think, is really relevant for thinking about healing the planet systems as well. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I go outside. <laughs> so I don't I, I'm not I don't tell myself anything. I'm not allowed to. Um, you know, <laughs> talk to myself. But when I am feeling like really crunchy or grumpy, I, I try to go for a walk or rest or maybe spend time with my kids. Sometimes if I can't do that, I straighten my desk. It makes me like just feel like I'm stepping back for a minute. But really the best is to go outside, go for a walk. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I guess I do have a sort of deep faith that that we can do it, you know, that our that that we can change paths, change direction. And I think the resilience and beauty, maybe this is why I go outside, the resilience and beauty of the earth itself makes me feel like it's possible. You know, like when you go to go to a, a, an amazing, you know, walk in the woods or a stream or something and you, and you see you think this is crazy this amount of life and this bounty, like this planet we live on is unbelievable and it makes me feel like we can do this <laughs> <laughs> well green dreamer you can find sandra more about her new book fixation and her work at sandragoldmark.com and fixup.nyc they're also on facebook at fixup repair nyc on twitter at sandra goldmark and on instagram at nyc fixup as always everything will be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com sandra it's been a pleasure and honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and expertise. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, thank you so much for having me. I really love your your perspective and your questions. And I guess my my thought for the Green Dreamers, or which is all of us, I guess, is just start or or take that next little step. I'm a big believer in one step after another. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song featured is Souvenir by Irini Skylakaki. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>